0: Nice to be back with you, uh, preaching again, uh, but I do want to say thanks to uh, Reverend uh, Dr. John Ryan for uh, for for uh, for for yeah, for preaching last um, Sunday. It was uh, it was awesome to listen to what you shared and the insights which we got from scripture. And if you've not had a chance to listen to it, on uh, on the podcast then uh, make the most of that because there's a lot of good stuff uh which was shared in that so thanks so much John that was great now one of the themes running through revelation kind of like a, an artery um is this idea of the wrath of god now i know you guys say wrath and uh i i can't my mouth's not able to uh Make it happen, and I don't understand why we say wrath because it clearly is an A. So this is uh, one of the ways which I will concede to you, Canadians, that you probably have it right. But uh, but but this uh, yeah, this whole idea of the wrath of God, and you cannot escape the wrath of God as you read through the Book of Revelation, and it's actually this very idea of the wrath of God that makes us sometimes avoid wrestling with revelation because the idea of God's wrath especially in such an enlightened society like ours it makes us feel a bit uncomfortable like that coworker who has halitosis you just want to kind of stay a little bit away from them make sure there's a comfortable distance between you and them but you know the good news is that God's wrath is not like bad breath it's not something that we should keep our distance from instead it's actually a vital vital aspect of God's character in fact if we exclude God's wrath when we worship him then we need to ask if we're worshiping him at all or if we're just worshiping an idol of our own making Now that's not to say that the idea of God's wrath needs to be explained because of course it does and that's why I'm here and that's why we're having the sermon that we uh, are having this morning. Um, But it it really does have to be explained because people have used God's wrath to kind of force people to shoehorn them into conformity with their own agenda and sometimes to to force people um, into maybe compliance or something like that. So it is important that we understand what the wrath of God is and why the wrath of God is important. So, so in order to help us, let me share with you one, one, one uh, way of explaining what the wrath of God is. And this is taken from the New Bible Dictionary. This is what it says, God's wrath refers to the permanent attitude of the holy and just God when confronted by sin and evil. It is a a personal quality without which God would cease to be fully righteous and his love would degenerate into sentimentality, a bit like Santa Claus, right? His wrath, however, and this is important, is not wayward, it's not fitful, and it's not spasmodic, as human anger always is, which means that God does not fly off the handle. He doesn't just say, that's it, and throw something at us, all right? That's not the anger that's not God's wrath. And then the end of the definition says this. It is as permanent an element in his nature as his love. It's as permanent an element in his nature as his love. Yet we don't sing many songs about God's wrath, you know? Loads of songs about God's love. Not that many. I can think of one. Um, and that's it. And we don't sing that one here. So, there's this pastor in the States called J.D. Greer, and while writing on God's wrath, he says this, first, God's wrath often consists in letting us experience the consequences of the choices that we make. Second, God chose to let his love overcome his wrath, end quote. And that's key. That is the message of the cross, right? That God chose to let his love overcome his wrath, and then, J.D. Greer goes on to write, one of the most remarkable passages of scripture that shows this, that God's love overcame his wrath, is Romans 5 6 through 10. And he then. You know, we then read Romans 5 or 6 and it says this, While we were still powerless, Christ died for the ungodly. Very rarely will anyone die for a righteous person, but God demonstrates his own love for us in this, that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. While we were God's enemies, we were reconciled to him through the death of his son. End quote. Now in his book, the problem of pain C.S. Lewis writes a chapter on hell and some words in this chapter help us understand God's wrath and this is now C.S. Lewis uh, in the long run the answer to all who object to the doctrine of hell or for our discussion God's wrath um, is itself they, they have to answer a question for themselves and then he asks, he asks this rhetorical question sort of um, what are you asking God to do? to wipe out all their past sins and at all costs to give them a fresh start, smoothing every difficulty and offering every miraculous help. But he has done so on Calvary. What else are you asking God to do? To forgive them, but they will not be forgiven. And then this third option, what are you asking God to do? to really do, to leave them alone, then he answers this. Alas, I am afraid that that is precisely what he does. In the end, there are only two kinds of people, those who say to God, thy will be done, and those to whom God says, thy will be done, end quote. And so friends, in summary, God's wrath is his way of respecting our free will, our free choice. One author words it like this, if we are really free to choose to respond to God's marriage proposal to our souls, if God is not a rapist but a gentleman, then we must be free to turn him down. And if our souls at death enter eternity in that state after there is, after there is no more time for change and repentance, then we must endure the, the identity that we have chosen forever. Now, we struggle with this idea of God's wrath mainly because we think that we're generally good people who perhaps need just a little bit of a spiritual facelift, a nip and a tuck. But in fact, the Bible tells us that we are absolutely and we are desperately sick with a terminal and a contagious sickness. We are all sick with a spiritual coronavirus if you want and God has, the, God has the only medicine, uh, God has the only, only antidote, which happens to be a blood transfusion where Jesus is the only donor. And one day God will call time on the, on the terminal and contagious uh, sickness of sin that is ravaging his world. And uh, b- Because if he doesn't, then what will happen in the new heavens and the new earth? if there are people still infected by sin. So wherever sin is found, God's wrath is found. And if that sin happens to be found in you, and if it's not being dealt with at the cross, if you've not chosen the purifying experience of exchanging your infected blood for Jesus' pure blood, then you will be caught up in the wrath of God as God deals with this pandemic and infection of sin once and for all. And so what we see in Revelation 15 through 19, that's a long kind of intro, but, but what we see in Revelation 15 through 19 is the heart of a God who is absolutely focused on the complete ending of sin and evil once and for all. And we have to remember that this God is Jesus, who we learnt earlier in the book of Revelation, um, who is... He was so focused on the ending of sin once and for all that he took care of it on the cross. That all happened then. Jesus is the lamb that was slain, as chapter five, verse six tells us. So what? So what? Jesus, um, what Jesus intended and achieved on the cross this same Jesus is going to complete in, his, in its fullness through these series of three judgments. Now, we've looked at two of these judgment series so far, the seals and the trumpets, and today we will look at the bowl judgments. So feel, feel free if you want to turn to Revelation chapter 15, and I'll kind of give us a scan through what we see, but it's really good for you to read along Revelation chapter 15. So uh, in chapter 15... We're introduced to this massive crowd of people next to this fiery sea of glass. Now, it's a bit of a victory party going on because these are the people who had been victorious over the beast and its image and over the number of its name. Okay? And so, you know, there's, there's some party music going on. I was at a party last night, had lots of fun, not the same kind of music. We weren't singing Be" by... Spice Girls or or whatever it was. Instead, they were rocking out to the sound of harps. Okay, that's okay. And uh, and they were singing this song that Brings them back to this moment when the Israelites crossed the Red Sea after being in captivity for 400 years. Then verse five tells us that the, that the temple was opened and out come seven angels with seven plagues. Then one of the living creatures, those four living creatures, you know, kind of weird looking, then gives the angels seven wide, shallow bowls filled with the wrath. Uh, 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 uh with the wrath, wrath of God and then verse 8 gives us this picture of the glory and the power of God filling up, up the temple like he did in Exodus 30 verse 35 remember that a lot that we read in the book of Revelation finds, you know, lots of the symbols find their root there in the Old Testament um, and this is a holy moment because this is the moment when evil will be dealt with once and for all. And then it says in verse 8 that no one could enter the temple until the seven plagues of the seven angels were completed. Which means that there's no more discussion, no more dialogue. This is the moment when the radiotherapy of God's wrath will deal with the cancer of evil in the world once and for all. From this moment onwards, there's no there's no Uh, There's no exit strategy. This is it. It has to be seen through. Now, just like chapter 15 riffs off the concept of the Exodus and God's people escaping captivity through the Red Sea, so chapter 16 then takes this idea of the 10 plagues and runs with them. So we have a plague of sores like plague chapter, uh, like plague 6 back in Exodus. We have water turning into blood like plague 1. We have solar flares in verse 8. We have an, an, an all-encompassing darkness like plague 9. We have the drying up of the river Euphrates, which is similar to the passing of the Red Sea and the Jordan River. And then we have frogs in verse 13, which is like the second plague. And hailstones in verse 21 like this seventh plague now as these plagues are going on three times in verse 8 verse 10 and verse 21 we are told that the people cursed the the name of god because of their suffering yet they refused to repent they cursed the name of god because of their suffering and yet they refused to to repent their hearts were hard And then verse 12 tells us that the sixth plague dried up the river Euphrates and the river Euphrates never dried up um, and it dried up so that the kings of the east could cross it ready for the battle of Armageddon in verse 16. Now, after the drying up of the Euphrates, we then have this plague of frogs in verse 12, as I'd already mentioned. But it's not really a plague. It's just three frogs Okay, but they come out of the mouth of the dragon that is Satan and they come out of the mouth of the beast who is the Antichrist and the third one comes out of the mouth of the false prophet. Now these evil frogs, frogs know how to lie and they, and, they, and they fool the kings of the world into waging war against God at Armageddon. <sighs> now... Let's remember, like John mentioned last week, not to get hung up on symbols because in the book of Revelation, it's not the symbols, but it's the meaning of the symbols that is the message of Revelation. And at that, I want to take a brief interlude and talk about Armageddon because Armageddon features highly in our cultural landscape. You know, there's movies, I don't want to close my eyes, I don't want to fall asleep, cause I miss you babe, and I don't want to miss a thing, with Steve Tyler with his big lips, awesome, great film, ludicrous. But, you know, and so when we think of the words Armageddon, we might think of that film of, you know, of an asteroid and Bruce Willis and oil, what are they, oil diggers, Anyway, or is it the left behind? Is it these? You know, is it all these other movies of the apocalypse? What does Armageddon mean? Now, the thing is, in the Bible, it's hardly mentioned at all. In fact, really, it's just kind of mentioned here, and all it means the 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 word Armageddon all it means is the mountains of Megiddo, and these were kind of located southeast of the of the Sea of Galilee, and the reason that The mountains of Megiddo or the plain of Megiddo is mentioned is that the people in that time would have known that in the past there were some really decisive military victories won there, okay? Fights happened there and so as soon as that's mentioned, people go, "Uh, I know what you mean. It's a bit like if I was to walk up to you and I said, you, me, outside. What would you think? What would be the first thing that comes to your mind if I say, you, me, outside, fight. Now, nowhere in that sentence of you, me, outside did I say, I'd like you and I to step outside into the back parking lot of the church because you've offended me and my honor, and the uh, only way for me to settle this is to take you outside and to get in- involved in a physical fight, and either we're, you know, um, either one or the other will quit, or will end up with, with a bleeding nose, or we will end up unconscious on the ground. You know, I don't say that to you, and if I said that to you, you'd probably laugh at me and say, okay, Dan. Okay, but if I say to you, you, me, outside, you know what that means. And in the same way, um, that's what chapter 16, verse 16 means. When the early Christians heard, then they gathered the kings together in that place called, called, called Armageddon, or the mountains of Megiddo. They knew exactly what that meant. It meant that there was going to be a big decisive conflict like the ones in the past even if it didn't literally happen on the plains of Megiddo and so John is saying that God is saying to the forces of evil and the corrupt world leadership he's saying to them you me outside that's what's happening here they know that only one of them will be walking away from that fight now in chapter 16 verse 19 we read this that the great city split into three parts and the cities of the nations collapsed God remembered Babylon the great and gave her the cup filled with the wine of the fury of his wrath there it is again and this reminds us of the cup that Jesus talked about in the garden of uh, 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 of Gethsemane and then chapter 17 gives us a more detailed view of the drinking of this cup and what that looked like. So chapter 17 is all about the fall of Babylon. Now, for John, this would have meant the fall of Rome, um, but it's not happened yet, right? Because it wouldn't actually happen until AD 410 when Alaric and the Goths came into Rome and they ruined it all, okay? That's when Rome ended. But here, It's been written about in chapter 17 as if it's already happened, which which as you could imagine, for those who were suffering uh, suffering under Rome's rule, who who were being persecuted, having this said as if it had already happened would have been a huge, huge encouragement. And so chapter 16 and 17 form this really graphic image of the downfall of Babylon. Babylon a city that has now become a symbol because it was an actual place, right? Um, you know, it was the place w- w- where they made a tower, you know, and they built it up to heaven and then God said, that's enough, you know, and then he kind of uh, messed up all their languages and, and, uh, and, and you know, that, that's, that's what it means. But now it's a symbol of any government or system that sets itself up against God. And so in John's time, Rome was actually Babylon, and in our time, any time that, that our Canadian authorities set themselves up in rule against God's rule, they then really turn into Babylon. Okay? And then chapter 17 calls Babylon or Rome, this prostitute riding on a scarlet beast with... with um, with, with uh, ten horns. And so there's a ton of symbolism in this chapter that we don't have to go into right now. But suffice to say that in Roman mythology, Rome was pictured, you know, like a god. She was really beautiful. She was a hero. But now God is describing Rome in a different way as a prostitute. And then chapter 18 paints this stunning and tragic picture of a world trying to get along without Rome. So all of the kings of the world who were in bed with Rome are now mourning and the merchants who got fat and rich off Rome's excesses are now mourning. And so the impact of the fall of Babylon, the fall of Rome was absolutely massive. Now this weekend was the start of a UK-less EU, right? A UK-less EU, massive change. And so, if if you can just think about all the trade agreements that have to be rewritten and renegotiated now that UK has left the EU, um, when a big when a big player is taken out of the world stage, you know it has massive, wide-reaching uh, consequences. Or maybe this will help you imagine it even more. Imagine if, um, if in the morning you read the news and the head news line was that the U.S. no longer exists. Okay? Our neighbor to the south no longer exists. There was no rule of law. There was no more trade. There was, there was, there was no more treaties because the U.S. ceased to exist. Now, what would the ripple effects of that look like around the world okay it is incredible you know we aren't even able to wrap our minds around it you know just a tiny bit this is what the first century jews are being asked to imagine in revelation 18 that one day mighty rome will fall Now we might think, well, is God anti-trade? Is he, you know, is he anti-capitalism? And you know, the answer is no. That's not the message of Revelation. But what he is anti is the utter evil of empires being built on the back of the weak and the poor and the down trodden which is why the last thing to be listed in verse 13 of chapter 18 in this massive list of trades and economic failures it talks about silk it talks about ivory it talks about marble it talks about spice it talks about myrrh it talks about cattle it talks about sheep etc etc but the last thing that's mentioned in that massive long list is what slaves and so uh, 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 and so god has rome in court and he's saying that uh, that what you did in building your empire on the back of these slaves is inherently wrong and you will have to pay for it and so all of the people who made money and made their livelihoods from from the misuse and the abuse of these slaves suddenly find the rug whipped out from under their feet and then verse 21 shows us an angel lifting up a boulder and throwing it into the sea saying with such violence the great city of babylon will be thrown down never to be found again now i was in rome last year with wendy for our 15th anniversary and rome still exists um, and it's actually rather beautiful. Um, but Rome, in the sense of the Roman Empire, no longer exists. Rome is now a museum. Rome is now a monument to what once was. So, 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 so this thing that was said to John in the first century, this, that, that was so ludicrous, it was laughable, it would be as ludicrous as saying you know, that the U.S. will one day end... It was it was so ludicrous. It would never happen, and yet it happened in A.D. 410. The unsinkable Rome hit the iceberg of God's judgment and sank beneath the waves. Now I do want to make clear that that uh, you know the only reason why I'm drawing a connection between Rome and the U.S. is because it's the biggest world superpower. And to help us understand, you know, I, I'm not you know I'm not drawing any more conclusions um, than that. Okay. Uh, So moving on to chapter 19, evil is overcome, so this prostitute is finally taken down. And then chapter 19 gives us the response of a universe that is breathing a sigh of relief, that is erupting in joy. Friends, you and I are now living in squalor. We are surrounded by the filth and the dirt and the struggle of a broken world that's under the thrall of Satan. And we don't even know it. It's like we've been in the bath for too long and we don't recognize how cold the water is or how scummy the water is or how there's this like, scummy ring around the bath. We don't see that anymore because we have been in this bath water for too long. And yet, if the Queen of England came and knocked on your house and she said she needed to have an emergency bath, (laughs) you wouldn't just say, here, use my, my bath water. In her presence, you would see how tepid and how dirty and how nasty it is and you would start to feel that grit at the bottom of the bath, you know, that just uncomfortable. You would... Feel the need, you know, to actually do something about it. Now, if you're saying, well, the world's not that bad, and what is God's big problem anyways? This shows, if that's your response as you look around, then it shows that you've been in the bathwater for too long. The only thing to do with dirty bathwater is to pull the plug, to let the water out, clean the tub, and then to start filling the bath with fresh, new, hot water ready for royalty. And that's why chapter 19 is so full of praise and worship and joy and relief because God has finally done what we've never been able to do throughout history regardless of our, our social programs and our efforts and our missions and everything. He's finally able to get rid of evil. And that's why we read the words of this vast throng in, cha- in verse 1 of chapter 19, which says, Hallelujah! Salvation and glory and power belong to our God because his judgments are true and just. For he has judged the, the great prostitute who corrupted the earth with her sexual immorality, and he's avenged the blood of his servants poured out by her own hands. Now, so now this prostitute is out of the picture, and now... now Now, this kind of virgin bride of Christ takes center stage, and she's kind of, you know, shy and not really sure of what to do, you know, because all of the focus is on her. But now she's able to marry her fiance, Jesus Christ. This church that has been like Cinderella, forced to work and to sleep in the ashes, held down by a supremely wicked stepmother. She's been hit and mistreated and abused and told day after day after day that she's worthless and she's ugly and she'll never amount to anything. But now the prince arrives on his horse in verse 11. The shoe fits her and the church now realizes that she is beautiful and worthy and loved. Verse 8, hallelujah for the Lord God almighty reigns. Let us rejoice and be glad and give him glory for the wedding of the Lamb has come and his bride has made herself ready. Fine linen, bright, bright and clean, was given her to wear. And then verse 9 shows us this incredible scene. We see the church as both the bride and, those, and as the, those who are invited you know, to the wedding. Okay, So here's the bride walking down the aisle that's the church. And the church is watching the bride walk, walk down the aisle. It's a bit of an out-of-body experience. Yes, it's rather confusing. I see your face, Wendy. <laughs> but, but what that says for me is that? Is that, uh, is that we as the church will be there at the wedding and we will see the church walk down the aisle and we will say, wow, the bride looks absolutely beautiful and then we'll realize that the bride is us. And then the angel says, you know, it's not like anything that God says is a lie, God cannot lie. But then as if to emphasize how important this is, God then says, or the angel says to John, "These are the true words of God." In other words, have have utter confidence in Him. And then, and then, and then, and then, chapter nineteen is kind of stuffed full of these contrasting images of this beautiful wedding over here and this horrific war happening over here. But really, they are two sides of the same coin, um, because you know it's the victory over evil. Uh, which is the dragon and the beast and the false prophet and the great city that enables the church over here to come into her own and to find out who she is. So there's this war going over here between Jesus and his army and these hordes of evil and Jesus wins. And then verse 19 says, Then I saw the beast and the kings of the earth and their armies gathered together to wage war against the, the rider on the horse and his army. But the beast was captured and with it the false prophet who had performed the signs on his behalf. With these signs he had had deluded those who had received the mark of the beast and worshipped its image. Then it says that the two of them were thrown alive into the fiery lake of burning sulfur. The rest were killed with the sword coming out of the mouth of the rider on his horse. And all the birds gorged themselves on their flesh Horrific image, but absolutely true and absolutely necessary. It's, it's this spectacular scene of the defeat of evil, and it's counterbalanced so wonderfully and beautifully with the wedding feast of the Lamb over here, and so and, and, and so Jesus is 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 calling all of us right and that's what our thought is he's calling us not to prepare for the wedding of the year or the wedding of the century but he's calling us to prepare for the wedding of eternity that's what romans 15 through 19 is all about and so to wrap up here today, I want to share a thought of mine that I wrote on the 70-Day Bible Challenge group on, on Facebook, which is a wonderful blessing. It really is a wonderful blessing. I think they have like 150 people on that group now. It's, it's incredible. And it, well, whatever. It feels weird quoting myself. A wise man once said. But uh, anyway, this is what I wrote and I think it's worth saying now. So, uh, revelation should drive us to pray. It should cause us to have a burden. It should cause those of us who are suffering to have greater joy and greater confidence. I think that many of us want to worship a revelationless, revelationless God, but I'm convinced after reading Revelation that our worship will be greater and our heart for evangelism will be expanded and our love for God will be stronger." End of quote. So next week, we're going to finish our journey through Revelation. Then we're going to start on Luke after that. But for now, let me leave you with the words from Revelation chapter 15, verse 3. Great and marvelous are your deeds, Lord God Almighty. Just and true are your ways, O King of the nations. Who will not fear you, Lord, and bring glory to your name? For you alone are holy. All nations will come and worship before you, for your righteous acts have been revealed. Lord, I thank you for your words, that it, it challenges us, Lord. And it makes us look at reality in a different way, and it helps us to try to work out, well, how, what does that mean in, in the society in which we live? Who are you, who are you calling us to be in this nation um, in light of these realities of this battle and of the wedding feast of the Lamb? Lord, I pray that, uh, we, w- that we would be encouraged that in a thousand years, Lord God, if this nation exists or if this nation no longer exists you will still be on the throne you will still be the king of kings and the lord of lords Um, that that will never change lord and that that our hope as it's placed in you um, will never be shaken lord i pray that you would give us a heart and a burden for those at the moment who are caught up in the corruptness of these world systems and maybe they don't even know it uh, where sin reigns, Lord God, and uh, where it looks like Rome will never end, and yet, Lord God, we know that you will have the last word, so may we not place our hope in 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 finances and in nations uh, you know in nations in and in the world military fund, whatever Lord God, but may we place our hope in you, and may we trust you. We ask this. In the name of the Lamb, whose wedding feast we we will attend. Through Jesus' grace. Amen.